Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Last time we talked to Richard Dolan, who, by the way, is the author of UFOs in the National Security State, Volume 1, he was working on a Volume 2, which may become a Volume 2 and a Volume 3. So before we get on, tell us what's the status of the book, the new editions. Yes, hi, hi, Gene, and hello, David. Actually, on my screen right in front of me, I'm I'm looking at the final chapter of Volume Two of UFOs in a National Security State. I'm finishing it. Um, I think if we were to have this conversation one month from today, I would be telling you that it's it's finished. So the book is a, uh, a my estimate is about 600 pages when I include the. Um, all the endnotes and index, which I haven't yet done the index. And it's been a long, long, long journey, let me just say. Uh, this book covers the years 1973 up until the end of the Cold War, 1991. It is as thorough an analysis of the UFO phenomenon and cover-up as I, I could possibly do during that period of time. Once this book is done... I expect to just move straight into the third and final volume of this study, which will take the story from 1992 to the present day. Uh, fortunately, all of my research, or let's say 98, 99% of my research is done, and um, and so I won't have to go through a huge research period on that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but it's been it's been a really long journey. I'm very happy with it. Uh, just last night, I finished a, another section on uh, Soviet UFO encounters in 1990 and 91. Um, I'm quite happy with that. As as that nation spiraled into its own non-existence, what we find is that um, they had a massive outbreak of UFO sightings and a very brief period of openness on discussing the topic of UFOs. So. It's, uh, every every new section of my book that I cover is an exciting section for me personally to deal with, and uh, I remember you know getting all of these notes down to to prepare them, but now re- revisiting them again to actually write them out in a nice prose form. It's I, I feel like I'm in the process of discovering all of this myself as I put it together. Did you find anything about UFOs in general that really astounded? or surprised you in building Volumes 2 and, of course, preparing to work on Volume 3? Yeah, there, there's a few things that I, I, I feel are very noteworthy that I have to remind myself of. One is that, particularly in writing the Volume 2, but certainly with Volume 3 also, is the sheer density and quantity of these sightings. So that, in other words, if you were to take any average week, say, of, I don't know, 1980, 83. 1983 was a slow year for UFOs, but guess what? I guarantee you that if major media were covering UFO news the way that they would cover the latest you know, doings of Britney Spears, every single week of that year would probably have some kind of bombshell uh, to report because, frankly, the quantity of decent sightings – in most of the years that I cover is very, very high uh, on most given weeks. And there were several cases where in one day in different parts of the world, uh, astonishing things took place. And yet, uh, typically, they, you know, you find that there's just no major reporting of them, unless maybe occasionally 
long after the fact. They may be a little right up here and there. So that was one thing that really struck me, is just the great disparity between the amount of good, in my opinion, well-observed documented reports and then the paucity of, uh, of reportage that you get in the media. In terms of the phenomenon itself, um, the big thing that I'm seeing in the period that I'm just finishing up now is the major emergence of the triangles. Uh, this is not something that you really see a lot of in the early years of the phenomenon, but you see an awful lot of them from the mid-70s and right on to our present day. Uh, the triangles didn't start with the Belgian phenomenon of 1989 and 90, uh, and they didn't even start with the Hudson Valley triangle slash boomerang flap of the early 80s. Uh, there were triangle sightings going way back even before the 70s, but we have major waves starting in the mid-70s. Uh, back in uh, 1975 in North Carolina, there were, for an entire week, there were very consistent, reliably reported sightings of some kind of triangular craft that was silent, uh, that exhibited all the kinds of characteristics you get with more conventionally shaped UFOs. I use conventional in relative terms. I mean, no UFO is a conventional object, but you know what I mean. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so I think the triangle phenomenon is an interesting thing. Um, another really key development, I think, in the 1980s was um, a, a kind of upsurge in what you'd call the cloak and dagger element of the UFO controversy. This isn't so much in the phenomenon as in the researchers and the intelligence community, which got very, very deeply, overtly involved in this. Uh, Are we talking about men in black here or something like that? No. Uh, I don't know about men in black as being a major – I mean, there's there's always a, a subtext of men in black rep, uh, reports that you get throughout any period. And I don't know how uh, common that phenomenon is in one era as opposed to any other. But I mean um, – well, here's what I think actually happened um, as I trace the history of this. In the early 1970s, when this story, this volume begins, the UFO topic in the public eye had been kind of dead for a couple of years. And, you know, not long before that, you had the uh, Condon Commission, which had been a, a sponsored study by the United States Air Force to look into UFOs. And, of course, they said that there's really little to no scientific value in pursuing this. And so that gave the Air Force this excuse to drop Project Blue Book. And the UFO topic was sort of left twisting in the wind, so to speak, for a number of years. There were a couple of organizations still around trying to keep it going, but UFOs were very low-key in the early 70s. What happened was that the Freedom of Information Act, which was revamped in 1974 and then through the late 70s, and then under Jimmy Carter especially, caused a real resurgence of this issue to make Headlines, And the reason is that it became clear that there was a cover-up going on. You had a number of research groups that used freedom of information to obtain not hundreds but thousands of pages of government and military documents on this. And so what it looked like is that, holy smokes, there might just be the magic document that's going to break the secrecy on this wide open. At the same time, in the late 1970s, there was another um, – 
another threat to secrecy, so to speak, in my opinion, and that was the leaking of stories about crashed UFOs and also uh, individuals who would claim to see, for example, alien bodies at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or some other underground facility. A lot of these leaks started coming out in the late 70s. They came out in particular initially to a researcher named Leonard Stringfield, who that was his thing. He had written a book that dealt with this topic a little bit, and then suddenly in the late 70s, a lot of people came to him. And so... This had really never been something that UFO researchers had taken seriously before, not in any significant way. So all at once, within a couple of years, you got two major potentially blockbuster types of developments occur in the field. The documents, the you know, Freedom of Information Act documents, and these crash retrieval stories, out of which we get uh, the Roswell story. It was only one of many of these. Okay, and that became that got some real forward motion by 1979-1980. So what I believe happened, what it looks like to me happened, is that there was an active, uh, let's call it counter-strike by the intelligence community to throw cold water over this. And uh, to this day, I think the results of that have, have really muddied the waters of UFO research. I'm speaking of uh, the Majestic 12 documents mm-hmm. and, uh, and a number of other stories that I think have come out facilitated by the intel community. I'm not saying, incidentally, that I think the Majestic 12 documents are untoto fabricated or false. I don't believe that they are completely false. Um, I think that there is an MJ or a Majestic organization that does exist, and I do think that the MJ-12 documents very well could be derived from truly legitimate documents. Uh, but what I am saying is that it looks to me that in the early 1980s, as a result of these two threats, there were documents leaked out by the intelligence community, including the MJ-12 documents and others that have forever divided researchers, so that now nobody really knows is something legitimate or not. The arguments have never ceased over this. Okay, let me ask you a quick question here, Richard. Regarding the MJ-12 documents, you're saying they were based on something that could possibly be real, but then did they just take the real documents, fabricate them, and then send them out into the wild? Well, yeah, what I think happened is that there, there are different versions we know that exist of these documents. So, for example, in 1983, a, a year and a half before the MJ-12 documents were mailed to Jamie Shandere and Bill Moore, uh, Linda Moulton Howe was shown something that sure as heck looked like the MJ-12 documents when she was at Kirtland Air Force Base visiting Richard Doty, who was a member of uh, Office of Special Investigation for the Air Force. And Doty showed her documents that were uh, presidential briefing papers, as she recalled, uh, documents that dealt with crashed UFOs, crash retrievals, but they were different in key ways than the documents that surfaced a year and a half later. One of the key differences was that these documents described a crash at Aztec, New Mexico, which the MJ-12 documents certainly did not. And there were other differences, too. What it looks like to me is that these documents were being shopped around and that they continued to be tweaked a little bit until they were finally sent out in 1984. I also believe that they were they definitely came out of, um, of Kirtland Air Force Base 
because Timothy Good, the British researcher, was also in touch with people who were getting him MJ-12 documents. And I spoke to Tim Good about this. He has still never really said who these people were, except that they were American, and that he didn't say that it was Richard Doty who gave him the MJ-12 documents, but he did indicate to me, and this is going into my book, that it was a group that was probably, in his opinion, connected to Doty. And that's all that he would say on the matter. So is Doty the person who is most responsible for the fake documents? Is that what we're saying? I, I think so. I think that Richard Doty was very much involved as part of his job. I'm not holding this against the man. I, I don't want to be misinterpreted here. I've corresponded with Richard Doty, and, and uh, I personally have had no reason to have a problem with this man. But yes, I think so. I think that actually what happened is that these documents were sent out, um, <clears throat> in my opinion, at this time, is, is a, a method of um, of slowing down or throwing some cold water over the research in this field. And, and well, I think that the way you do that, though, is you take something that could very well be true, that is true. Uh, it's my opinion that there is a majestic group, and uh, but if you present it in such a way that it's not valid or useful, you thereby disable the entire topic, it seems to me. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We're talking to Richard Dolan, and he is working, finishing up Volume 2 of UFOs in the National Security State, which we hope will be out in the very near future, and he starts in Volume 3. David, this led you to something, and I wanted to hear what it is. Well, yeah, here's the problem, Rich. Um, when you bring up names like Richard Doty, I've talked to Doty on the phone. We've actually tried to get him on the Paracast. Uh, I've had a long, couple of long talks with him. And right. in looking subsequently at the things that his finger has been on top of, 
things like Serpo. Right. Uh, thing, things that, again, there are people who in this field will grasp any story and try to create a framework by, by which they can justify the story. And, and, and this, of course, leads to the whole problem of even trying to get anything done here, which is that you keep running into these brick walls. So in the case of Doty, uh, and, and I don't claim to know as much about the man as you might, and certainly I've not done the kind of research you've done, but... Every time his name comes up, it seems like there is a serious amount of disinformation being spun yes, yes, absolutely, near him. Absolutely. Right? I, this is what I'm also saying. But the thing is, what is disinformation? Is disinformation all lies? Can't be. Because if, if all of your disinformation is lie, then, then you don't have credible disinformation. The whole point of it is that you mix lies with truth. Well, and this it's is not believable. It's not credible. Sure, anymore. sure. Well, the, my, my old friend Paul Mavridi says, without lies, there can be no truth. But that's stated. When we start talking about, for example, and again, I'm just throwing things out here, and, and, and having been voted the top troublemaker in the UFO field last year, <laughs> I, uh, I guess I have a bit of a reputation to live up to here. But this is the thing, Rich, in that we try to have serious discussions about this. And, and the problem, of course, is that this pool has been so seriously tainted now. It really is very seriously tainted. And I think we can all agree, certainly the three of us talking right now can agree that there's something very significant happening here. And it, it's an onion that has many layers. And as we, we, we get down through the layers, it seems like things get murkier and murkier. So, for example, in the case of, of, of Doty, right? Right. Where we have him meeting with uh, with Linda Moltenhow and... Um, we have him showing her certain things. Yeah, then you bring up Timothy Good, and I, 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 we like Timothy Good. We had him on the show. He was a nice guy. About half of what he's got seems reasonable. The other half of what he's got is is not reasonable. You know, it's different ratios for everybody. You know, and and the same goes for for Linda Moulton Howe. I know she's gotten a lot of grief. I think a bunch of the work that she did early on in terms of the cow mutilation stuff was very compelling. You know, then you, you flash to contemporary times where she got behind this, uh, the, these, uh, these drones. Um, and again, anybody who looked at the drone images with any sort of a trained eye could see that they were not even very good CG. And so what ends up happening is that you step back and you say, all right, you look at this field and there is some underlying core of truth, which has got a whole lot of distraction on top of it. So my question to you as a researcher is, what tools, what methods do you bring into play to separate the signal from the noise? Great question, David. I, I was almost afraid that we were talking across purposes, but I don't think that we are. Um, <clears throat> before I, I answer that, I do have some thoughts on this. I, I want to say mm -hmm. one thing about, about Linda Howe, uh, a person that I have an immense level of respect for. Um, it's absolutely true that you know, when you put yourself out there to investigate case after case, uh, to really be a voice that, in a sense, pierces past the, through the matrix of the 24-7 propaganda barrage uh, that people are subjected to, that, that every now and then you're going to get a story that's not going to be the story you think it is. Um, so, I mean, for myself personally, I am forever willing to cut Linda immense slack because I think of the am amazingly good 
research that she normally does, in my opinion. I think that, generally speaking, her work is top-notch. Um, there are mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes, especially when you put yourself out there. But having said that, let me try to answer your question. Um, the, the only thing that I have to do at all times, I always have to separate two things. The things that I know, that I <clears throat> absolutely know are true, mm-hmm. and the things that I think may be true. And those are two different groups. Sure. So when I put together my history, believe me, every page of my book, every inch of my research, I'm constantly reminding myself, what do I know is true, and then what do things look like? And so I, I don't really have a problem in speculating about a whole bunch of things, as long as I qualify my statements the right way and, and remind myself and readers that this is a speculation based on certain things that I mm-hmm. am confident are true. And that's really all that I can do. So in other words, the, the key is not to be a fanatic, and the key is to um, remind yourself Here's here's the factual skeleton, as it were, that we can work off of, and we can put some meat on these bones, but we've got to be very, very careful about putting those meats on the, the meat on the bones. So, which is why when I when I'm giving you this hypothesis of the the counteroffensive, as it were, in the early 1980s, even now I'm not 100% sure that that's how it went down, but that is how it looks to me, and I suspect that that may be how it looks to to you guys as well. Um, then, in other words, there's a legitimate core here that that some researchers I think were getting at and I think that I think that the early 1980s saw a, a major effort and I think um, very likely the case of Paul Benowitz was part of that that the Air Force was involved in really playing mind games with Benowitz as well along those lines let me just say that I don't have the same thesis uh, as my friend Greg Bishop does on the Benowitz case though um, it's my opinion that Paul Benowitz was seeing some truly, truly exotic things, e.g. E- UFOs, over Manzano and over at by Kirtland Air Force Base, and that was one reason why he had to be disabled. I think he was seeing actual UFOs. And, and um, you know, it's, it, I think what has happened with the Benowitz case over since Greg Bishop's book has come out, Project Beta, which is a very good book in many ways. For example, I think that the main uh, thesis these days that you hear with Benowitz is that he was seeing advanced weapons testing and other kinds of interesting but fairly conventional types of technologies, but that this was a problem because he was he had a bird's eye view and was looking at a lot of these things and was writing about it and was drawing attention to it and that he therefore had to be disabled. And that's the thesis, and it's just I don't really happen to agree with it. I don't think that's the, the fundamental thing. Rich, for, for people who are not familiar, well, just just a step back for a moment because yeah, some of the listeners might not be familiar with who Benowitz is. So give us a little Thank bit of background you. on this man. Yeah, the thing is, my <laughs> head has been in the details of this for so long. Sure, I've, you're immersed in it. Yeah, to, I've got to step back. Right. Well, what happened is that in 1979, 1980, a, a, a private scientist who actually did a lot of defense work. Uh, named Paul Benowitz, who lived literally right across from Kirtland Air Force Base. He had, from his home, he could see the base. Well, what happened is that Benowitz, with a lot of his homemade, very sophisticated electronic gear, began to record some very unusual phenomenon going over Kirtland Air Force Base and in the nearby Manzano weapons uh, range, testing range there. So, uh, it was his opinion that these were 
UFO aircraft, UFO craft. And he furthermore believed that he was recording alien communication signals that were coming in from this area, uh, combined with the fact that he believed that there was an underground alien base in that vicinity. Um, Benowitz became, you know, was of the opinion that um, there was some kind of alien infiltration of human civilization in a way that was very, very threatening and dangerous. This man got very, very worked up with an idea, which he had to tell the president. Paul Benowitz wrote to Ronald Reagan when Reagan was president. He wrote to uh, senators of New Mexico trying to get them aware of the activity that he was recording. So now all of that we, we know happened. In the early 1980s, Richard Doty, who was an intelligence officer at Kirtland Air Force Base, was assigned to look into what Paul Benowitz was doing. And Doty went with some other people, and they interrogated Benowitz and, uh, in a friendly way, not you know hostile or anything like that, really to find out what he knew. Ever since that, it has been this big, muddy you know, bunch of claims and counterclaims as to what actually they did with Paul Benowitz. I tried getting straight answers out of Richard Doty on this, and, um, you know, good luck. It's very difficult. Uh, the one claim was that uh, Gregory Bishop, the researcher, said is that Doty actually took Benowitz in a helicopter over Mount Archuleta in, at Dulce, New Mexico, to show him fake alien bases. To, to get Benowitz to be very interested in Dulce as opposed to Kirtland and Manzano. Well, I don't think that's the case. Um, I've got very good evidence for that. First of all, Doty says absolutely not. But what I have are Benowitz – I have a, a good portion of Paul Benowitz's handwritten notes that were given to me by a, a very close friend of Benowitz, his name Ron Regeer. And uh, Benowitz was onto the Dulce thesis long before uh, anyone took him in that area, that's for sure. So what I think happened is that Paul Benowitz was saying genuinely odd things over Manzano, and that for this reason, this was the main reason I think that he had to be disabled. What ended up happening is that Paul Benowitz, through the 1980s, really started to lose it, and uh, by the late 1980s was hospitalized uh, for like a mental breakdown. One of the people who contributed to this was his friend, the researcher William Moore, who was working with Richard Doty. I mean, this is one of the key things in the 1980s UFO research is this close collaboration between elements of the intel community and certain UFO researchers like Bill Moore, who was one of the, the top two or three names in UFO research during that whole decade. You know, when Moore left the field by 1989-1990, he really left it a trail of destruction behind him because people were really not sure who to believe any longer. The, the problem here, Rich, and this is, uh, let me qualify this. I know Gene has had a long time involvement and interest in this field. I, I can't say the same for myself, okay? I'm someone, I'm an experiencer who only in the last few years have I really started to look into this topic in any kind of a, a, a concentrated fashion. So, a lot of the stories that I hear, I mean, there's certain people whose names I've been aware of, people like Bruce McAbee, um, having been very involved in the image analysis aspect of this for more than a few years. Um, right. His name is one I'm familiar with. But as I started to dig into, in the last few years, a lot of this stuff that happened in the 80s with, with Doty and Linda Moulton Howe and Benowitz and more, then I started running into other names like, uh, like John Lear. 
And yes, right. So what ends up, what ends up happening? And again, this is the, the, as seen from the point of view of an experiencer looking in. I see a tremendous amount of noise, and I see very little signal. And I see again this this Doty name that comes up. One of the things, and and I don't I don't know this to be true, but it, it seems like every time his name gets associated with something, it's almost as if you know that you're talking about a majority of noise and a minority of signal. And and again, this whole Serpo thing with him and this guy Victor Martinez. And then um, uh, the Bill Ryan guy from the Camelot Project. And again, I don't really know these people very well. I just look at the results of their actions. And when I look at the Camelot Project, I see a huge mountain of disinformation that most of it is totally noise. There's very little signal there. And again, as an experiencer, I look at all this and I think, why are these people going to such an extent to muddy these waters. What the hell is behind that? Going back to the onion metaphor, there's layers here, and, and there's something going on even in terms of generating all of this noise that that strikes me as odd. Oh. Well, I know, I know Bill Ryan, and I, I know Kerry Cassidy, who uh, run that, that site. I absolutely believe that they are... Uh, Serious researchers who are doing their best to uncover stories that they think are true. Uh, I don't. I don't see them as uh, doing disinformation at all. You really that don't. I'm not, I want to really I clarify. Don't, I strongly don't, disagree. That doesn't, Rich. I that strongly doesn't disagree. Mean, but okay, yeah, good. That doesn't mean that I. I see everything that they put out as true. But I see them. In my opinion, I think that they are honest players in this game. Absolutely, I do think that. I've, I've known Kerry for a number of years, and I, I know I've met Bill on a number of occasions, and that is my opinion. So now, um, they've had a lot of interviews that they've had out there. I mean, you are, you're not willing to say that every single interview they've had is completely bogus as well. I mean, are you, actually? I would say of the stuff that's on their website, and I haven't, can't say I've watched every bit, but that guy Green talking about Ted Kennedy, one, I mean, the stuff that... That's been said by a number of the people. And again, then I have John Lear. Now, I've had personal interactions with John Lear. Right. And I'm intimately familiar with a bunch of his background. Okay? But at the same time, every single word, and I'll qualify this, every single word that comes out of John Lear's mouth regarding any aspect of the paranormal world, including UFOs, is absolute nonsense. Every single word of it. And, and Rich, this is not rocket science, man. When you've got a guy saying that, you know, humans can walk around the moon, that there's plenty of oxygen on the moon, the guy is insane. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah, well, well let, let me, let me okay. make something clear. Let me make something very clear here. Sure. When I talk about guys like Richard Doty, or even Lear, who I've written about in this book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, clearly I assume you realize that I'm not writing about them as a guy who believes everything that they say. I mean, obviously, right. I don't. They're, Doty and Lear are both very important historically to this field. And in fact, those are two of the key avenues by which the field of u ufology exploded in the 1980s. And you get guys like Bill Cooper, who was also part of this whole picture. You know, what, what it looks like to me, I mean, if we want to get into this, is that Lear fed Bill Cooper's fantasies. 
in the late 1980s. I mean, Bill Cooper got into this field uh, by writing a, a fairly innocuous letter to uh, the bulletin boards in 1987 when, when that's all at the – the internet was was bulletin boards, sure. and he described at that time the first thing he ever wrote was, "I was in the Navy in the 1960s, and I was part of a group of people that saw this mass amazing UFO." Okay, well now that's an interesting story, and that was Bill Cooper. That was it. That was the whole thing. Then what happened? Uh, in the late summer of 1987 or early fall, Cooper and Lear, uh, pardon me, 1988. Excuse me. Lear had had recently written his major letter slash statement in December of '87, which talked about all of this subterranean stuff that now has become very very big. So he started corresponding with with uh, Cooper in late 1988, in uh, late summer of '88, giving Cooper things that Cooper had no idea about. For example, the uh, the supposed uh, Kennedy assassination video, which Bill Cooper for a long time trotted out as proof that the driver shot Kennedy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. You may be. Fake Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Richard Dolan, and we're speaking about things that you will see in the next volume of yes. his book, UFOs in the National Security State. Okay, about the candy thing, just in one minute or less, for those who right. aren't sure, would you describe it? Gladly. In the late 1980s, Bill Cooper, who's now dead, promoted, you know, talked ex uh, extensively about how he had this exclusive uh, video showing how the driver shot Kennedy in the Assassin in the Zabruder film. And, uh, you know, it was... And this, he said, he had obtained through his channels in the military, and uh, and that this proved how Kennedy was shot as an inside job. Turns out that's just one of the many bogus things that Bill Cooper promoted and showed to the world. He got that tape from John Lear, and the reason Lear had gotten it, it was a fifth generation copy of the Zabruder film. Lear had gotten it from a um, a Scandinavian filmmaker who was in this project and was exploring the possibility, was Kennedy shot by his driver? Because from the way that this kind of muddy version of the film was, it looked like, yeah, maybe he actually did. So he was looking for backing and funding, and he had known Lear's name. He knew that Lear came from a very famous, wealthy family, and he knew that Lear was into conspiracy theories. That was basically it. So he sent this video to Lear trying to get some money. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for financial support. So Lear's got it all through the summer of 88, and he's thinking, oh, this is pretty interesting. He sent a copy of it to Cooper, and uh, by the late, this is late, or early, late summer, early fall, he sent Cooper a number of other things. He sent Cooper something called the O.H. Krill document. All right. Now, that was actually written not as a, an alleged inside bit of knowledge of the alien situation, but it was a an analysis by a guy named Val Valerian who didn't use his own name because he was active duty Air Force at the time. So he went to his friend John Lear and said, you know, I need a pseudonym. And Lear came up with O.H. Krill as kind of a joke. He gave Cooper that document. Cooper then claimed that that document was one that he had gotten while he was in the Navy. It was a secret document. And that O.H. Krill was this alien being living, uh, you know, in, on the inside with humans, uh, with, the, with the military. When Lear heard Cooper say that, I have to wonder, what, what was Lear's role here? Lear said, look, you know, I was just trying to share some stuff with Cooper. And essentially, it's like he had no idea Cooper would go off the deep end. Okay, well, maybe. But maybe it's maybe there's other things going on here. I don't know. But the fact is that Bill Cooper got that story and many, many other very questionable and wrong stories directly through John Lear. Mm-hmm. Cooper strikes me as someone who was absolutely a novice in this in 1988 and um, did acquaint himself rather quickly, I think, with a lot of this subterranean uh, conspiracy literature on the topic. If you read, for example, his paper, The Secret Government, which it's on the Internet, it's been out for, since 1989, he has a lot of citations in there. And, and some of the sources he cites in that, I mean, I've studied this paper of his, are totally legitimate. And then other things are just complete nonsense. Um, when Lear heard Cooper talk about the O.H. Krill document in the Navy, Lear, Lear was like, you know, are you insane? He went up to Cooper privately said, you know that, Val, uh, that John Grace, a.k.a. Val Valerian, wrote it. And that I named it last year. And Cooper, uh, according to Lear, said, well, you know, you're, you're a liar and you're a CIA agent, so go to hell. And so <laughs> maybe those are all true. But Cooper, Cooper was a guy who um, I, I really have wondered about what he was all about. He was so delusional that he had the ability to believe his lies, I think. There are such people like that. I think well, there, there are definitely such people like that, yeah, especially in this sandbox. There are a ton of them. Yeah, yeah. There are a ton of them. And that was and Cooper, and I think he was just – he was used, um, or he used himself, however, but he – Cooper walked through the field of ufology for a year or two and left an absolute tr- path of destruction behind him. Yeah, but I think you could say the same thing for Lear, Richard. That's the problem. I think that well, I, I didn't say that wasn't the case. Right, right, and, and, and right, and and I want to qualify this when I express that kind of an opinion about Lear. I'm not, you know, basing my opinion on third party information, on secondhand information. I'm talking about my direct interactions with the man that basically resulted in him on the Project Camelot interview he did, claiming that I'm a government operative. I mean, when I hear that kind of oh, stuff, he did? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I've been and, and he makes statements like that, and uh, Ryan and Cassidy don't don't even vaguely challenge those. And 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 you know, looking, I'm on the Project Camelot they're, they're website. Really, right now. They're, they're often not, you know, Bill, Bill and Carrie. I I don't really know. Um, if they'd be in a position to, to feel like they could challenge him on that. Well, no, that's and that's fine. But I, I, what I was going to say was that you look at the list of people who have 
been interviewed by them and you, you read them or you listen to a good amount of this stuff, people like Dan Burrish, people like Jim Sparks, who we had on our show. And I think we, to a very decent degree, were able to demonstrate that Jim Sparks is totally fabricating a story. There's just, there's nothing to what he's saying. There's absolutely nothing to it. Oh, interesting, and, interesting. Do you think it's possible that he believes his story? Cal Korf believes a lot of things about himself. I think we're talking about people believing their own lies. Wait, wait, Cal Korf or Sparks? Who are we talking about? No, no, well, I'm saying the reason I brought Korf was that Korf is another example of someone who can believe his own lies. Um, perfectly intelligent people can believe their own lies. There, there's a very fine line between intelligence and, and, and nuttiness. You know, it's a very yeah, fine no, line it's, there. It's I, I agree with you. I agree you, you know, with you. And so, again, looking at the list of people, you look through this stuff. Um, yeah, we had Jim Sparks on the show. We basically, as I said, I think we were able to demonstrate that essentially he was making stuff up, up as he was going along. Um, and, and, and having and we had him on twice. In fact, he decided to come on our show a second time. He offered to. We didn't ask him to. Um, and one of the reasons I think he did that was he liked the fact that we were asking him questions that nobody else was asking him so he could figure out canned responses. Uh, and this is a lot of what Jim Sparks does is he, he comes up with canned responses trying to accommodate every contingency. But if we go down the list of people on the Project Camelot website, where you have people like Bob Dean, you have people like Dan Burrish, you have people like Sparks, you have Lear, Ralph Ring, who, uh, in the case of Ralph Ring, there was a guy, and again, you can have people who are very nice people, the nicest people in the world. Clifford Stone, a very nice man. I've spoken to him on the phone. A sweetheart of a man. Do I believe anything he's saying? No, I don't. And, and, and you have to make that, that, that line in the sand where you say, okay, you can have people who are very sweet people, very nice people, the kind of people you'd love to have a meal with, but that is really a separate issue from the veracity and the truthfulness of the information that they Well, I, I have a slightly different position on some of these people. Okay. I mean, like Clifford Stone, whose who's living room I sat in more than once mm -hmm. I've, I've met a number of times. Bob Dean is another one. I have a very high regard personally for both of those men. Uh, in particular, Bob Dean is a guy that I just absolutely love. Um, now, they both have stories that are not verifiable. Okay, we're talking about Bob Dean and his... Uh, right claimed that as a member of Shafe in 1964 saw kind of a UFO briefing document sort of thing right. in NATO. And then uh, Clifford Stone, I assume you're referring to his main story that he, uh, as a member of Project Moondust, he says, uh, encountered an alien being. No, I'm, I'm thinking about the 57 species claim, the 57 species. That's oh, what I'm okay, about. okay. Yeah. Well, I... What, what did Clifford say about how he how he knew that then? That was John Lear. I didn't think that was Clifford Stone. Stone has, has said that he had inside knowledge about the military having identified 57 species of alien beings. Okay. Do you have a problem with it just because, in theory, you just don't think it's it's credible, or is there is there an actual? I mean, my my attitude with that is I would mm -hmm. like Stan Friedman's got that, that expression, the gray basket. I like that expression. Sure. I got a lot of things in my gray basket, and, and so do I. Some so do I. Says are my gray basket. I, I don't feel comfortable in dismissing Clifford Stone, and I certainly don't feel comfortable dismissing Bob Dean, whose story, frankly, strikes me as much more low key and, and totally believable. The way that he tells it, in my opinion, it is a very simple story. The way Bob Dean has described it from 1964, I don't find it all that outrageous. Uh, the other things that I know about Bob Dean, having spent some time with him, I happen to say that I believe him. Now, a lot of things Bob Dean talks about, 
he doesn't have any more expertise than anybody else. Not that he lacks it, but he's not in any better position to talk about certain things than anyone else. But regarding the 1964 story that he talks about, that goes in my gray basket too, but it's one in which my inclination is to think that I probably believe Bob Dean, very probably. I don't see a reason why Bob Dean – I just don't see um, this man as, as a fabricator. I just don't. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to Richard Dolan. His site is keyholepublishing.com. And before we progress, how'd you come up with that name? Because you're looking through the keyhole to find... Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like like spying, peeking in. Uh-huh. Uh, like a little kid who's trying to see what's in, what's in that big room. So let's look right in. And also keyhole as the key. You know, let's have the key that unlocks the secrets, unlocks the door. That's uh, something that, I've, that attracts me. And uh, and then there's a little bit of a, an homage uh, at the time to um, the late researcher Donald Kehoe, almost the same spelling. Once you know, I came up with that name, I thought, well, yeah, Kehoe, because my first book really was very heavily focused on Donald Kehoe, in fact. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that in there. But yeah, looking through the keyhole is really the image that I wanted to portray. <laughs> so are you there? We're here. I'll tell you okay. what, Kehoe, I met him a few times. Did you? Yes, I did. Neat. I would I would like to have met him. Never had the opportunity. Of course, you know, he was kind of an elderly man when you got yeah. involved in the field. He was dead when I got involved in the field. Oh, well, then he was more than elderly. But... <laughs> I didn't start, you know. I, I backed into this in the in 1993-94. Kehoe was dead for five years by then, and uh, as you guys know, but maybe some people don't know who are listening. I I was doing a doctorate in uh, European in American history. I'd switched over from European history to U.S. diplomacy, Cold War, Harry Truman, the birth of the CIA, national security strategy, all that stuff. 
not a thing to do with flying saucers, UFOs, or anything like that. And I just got the bug. In 94, I started researching this, basically taking uh, what I guess you could call ufology 101, finding out what is the literature, what's the relevant stuff out there, what are the arguments that the believers make, is there validity to and so on. And that's what sucked me right in. That was 15 years ago now. Good God. <laughs> so Are much happy? diversion. Yeah. That was going to last for two or three months. Um, I really wanted. It to never lasts no, for no, two or I, three months. No. Well, I wanted to do what I thought would be a quick little side project. I really wanted to satisfy for myself only what I thought of this. So this is one of those issues. Everyone's got it. You know, it hangs over your head, and you think, "Is there something to this or not?" And uh, it was always this thing that was kind of separate from my academic work, of course, you, right? And But I thought, well, that's kind of silly because if there's truth to it, then that, that's relevant to the historical study that I'm doing. Even if generals mistakenly thought UFOs were serious, why would that not be interesting in, in the history of 1950? Of course that's interesting. Go back in time and some CIA director or some three-star general is concerned about airspace violations. How could that not be of interest? So I wanted to know, was this, not was this real, but was this a valid historical event? And if so, why has every single academic book blown it off? That was the sole reason I got into this. I mean, just a very simple, simple question, but it was a good question. Because what I very quickly discovered to my own satisfaction was that, yes, it's absolutely a real phenomenon. It absolutely got high-level attention. That deserves historical treatment, and that's really what prompted me to get into this deeper and deeper. And it's just, you know, never stopped. Fifteen years, and it shows no sign of abating. Well, certainly the phenomenon shows no sign of abating either. No, no, absolutely. Uh, it, keeps, it keeps expanding. It keeps growing. And, and look, Rich, let's get a couple of things clear here, because uh, I very much respect the work that you do. Uh, it appears that we have some pretty serious disagreements about certain personalities in the field. Um, and that's fine. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is I'm not interested in making any friends here. I have no interest even in socializing with people in this field. Like I said, I mean, I'm, I've come into this as an experiencer looking for some understanding. Um, right. I take no specific positions with any of this. I mean, you saw the presentation that I did at the Culture of Contact events in Jersey City. I did indeed. Um, and, and so, you know, I hope you have a better, sort of better grasp on where I'm coming at this from. I, I know that I get people upset, um, and, and that's fine. Quite frankly, I don't really care um, because I'm looking for some answers well, here. I just don't right. care. What we should be interested in, what we should all be interested in, is finding out what is true. What is true? Right. What is true? Absolutely. And, and, and people will say, well, truth is a subjective thing. Uh, I don't necessarily believe that with this. I think that there are some hard truths to this. I don't know who I don't know of any researchers personally that I that I think are legitimate who say that um, there is a a tendency. By the way, I'm sending you some uh, some cool UFO pictures that I took as we speak here. Cool. You can give me an on on the spot analysis, both of you. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to get an instant analysis from the esteemed Mr. David Biedney very shortly. <laughs> We'll come up to that in just a moment. But, uh, yeah, what we have to be interested in is finding out what is true. And, mm -hmm. I mean, my attitude is I don't feel a strong need to come to conclusions on a whole bunch of things. Um, I'm perfectly happy to have a not knowing about, about many, many aspects of this phenomenon. 
Sure. Uh, what I what I know is what I know, and what I don't know is a whole bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we talk about people like Bob Dean or uh, or Clifford Stone or or some of the really more controversial people like Borish and uh, some others, um, I mean the fact that I may disagree with another person to me is of so little importance. Um, what I need to know about each individual that I deal with in their field in in this field is are they is it an honest disagreement? Or are they blowing smoke at me? And that's really the only thing I care about. I've been wrong, guys, about a lot of things in this life of mine. I reserve the right to be wrong in the future. That's the way it is. Okay? That's, now you're um, stealing my quote. That's, that's my, that's that my right? tagline on the show. Yeah, I reserve the right to be wrong. I'm going to call the lawyers. I think if the lawyer is on the phone, he says he will sue Richard Dolan for $400 million for stealing David Vietney's patented... Uh, phrases, catchphrases. I think it would be trademark, but that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. No, if you get sued for a lot of money, you know, that, then you get people who support you for a lot of money. And I, I might, I might just support that whole thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, by the way, guys, I'm sending you both this email, and okay. when you get it, say, so let me let me explain to people what exactly I'm sending you. Back in 1994, uh, let me just send a little note here with you. Nah, never mind. You, in, 19, in 2004, excuse me, I was playing tourists in Washington, D.C. It was um, um, April of 2004. It was right after, in fact, the first X conference uh, organized by Stephen Bassett. I hung around in D.C. for a couple of days after that. And, um, in fact, there was a, a fellow who wanted to do a video about me or with me or whatever. So we were shooting some video. And uh, I was playing tourists, taking some pictures, stock photography of Washington, D.C. and so forth. And... Um, there's a picture of an American flag right across the street from me. This is in downtown D.C. Perfectly blue sky. Beautiful day. And I wanted to get this flag blowing in a certain way. I thought maybe I could use it. I didn't like the first picture because the wind wasn't blowing right. And then I took another and then I took a third. I took three pictures on this flag. And uh, by the third picture, I thought, well, that's good enough. <laughs> I didn't look at the pictures until I got home. There's digital photography. just sent those to you guys. When I looked at it on my large screen, I noticed a black object in the upper right quadrant of the image. It was in the sky. It's largest in the first image. And in the, um, the next two pictures, I didn't move, so the perspective is exactly the same. You can see the object moving to the left, farther away from the camera, and then curving to the right in the final picture, really far away from the camera. So it's an interesting series of pictures because it's three photographs taken within 60 seconds of each other in which this object seems to be in the sky and it seems to be going at a very sharp angle very far away. Now, in the first of those images, that's really the best one that you can get a look at. If you go zoom in really a lot on it, which I've sent you a cropped image, a cropped Mm -hmm. zoom of the first one. Uh, It's not touched enhanced in any way. And then the other th- the three I've sent you are totally unenhanced in any way. In the first one, when you look at it on a zoom, it looks honestly like a black uh, goldfish cracker. <laughs> it's the exact shape. It's uh, got- it's a flying black goldfish cracker, ladies and gentlemen. It's the case of the flying no. Well, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, I wonder it if it was an airship of some sort. But the thing is, it looked really high up for that, and it moved. I mean, you know, a blimp or anything like that couldn't move like that. Uh, some people have thought it's a bird. I can't see a bird in that image. Um, well, uh, I can tell you this from just looking at it. I'm just looking at it in my browser, okay? So I'm not doing any real work on it yet. But just looking at it, 
One of the things I can, I think I can say with some degree of certainty is that because there doesn't appear to be much atmospheric haze affecting it, it's closer to the camera compared to further away from the camera. If this was something that was very, very far away, even on a clear day, you right. see a pretty decent amount of hazing in front of it. You, you don't. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's very distinct. That's true. It's very distinct yeah. black. So how far do you think it might be? Do you think it's in the sky or do you think it's right in front of the camera? No, it's definitely it's in the sky. It's not right in front of the camera. If it were right in front of the camera, it would not be this clearly defined. Yeah, um, okay. Then it would be more out of focus. Uh, hard to tell. But as I said, I think it's closer versus far away, which means that it's also relatively small. It could be like maybe a bag of balloon. I, I, think, that's, I a, think that's entirely possible. Yeah. I, I, again, I'd have to look at it more carefully. You know, I don't want to just give you a definitive statement yeah. about it and, and say right, this is what said, it is or isn't. Well, yeah. listen, I've never tried to, to make anything out of this image. Um, I've mm -hmm. had it now for almost five years, and uh, I've only shown a few people. Um, I find it something that's interesting. I really, for the life of me, couldn't figure out what it was. I, actually, I'm not... I'm not of the opinion that it's a balloon just by the way it seems to move, but then again, maybe it Maybe I have, to, I have to overlay these images and see what the trajectory of it is. But but again, I, I, it, it, oh, here's what I want to ask you. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, when you look at the enhancement of that image, you see a kind of um, bright, uh, like a, almost like a glow around it. Now, I don't necessarily think that's anything. Is can that be a, a feature of the enhanced, like, of the digital photography itself? In other words, actually, you usually no, no, that's called halation. Yes. And usually, you see halation on images that are compressed with JPEG compression. Um, that is actually very often a remnant of the discrete cosine transforms, the DCT compression methodology uh, used in JPEG images, using the JPEG image uh, uh, file format. You got a big old brain, don't you? Well, when it comes to imaging, uh, yeah, I do. Again, with images, uh, there's certain terminology, there's certain artifacts that, that you, you usually do see on pictures. JPEG compression is something that the untrained eye thinks looks decent, but a trained eye can see all of the problems involved with it. And, and typically, and I think I've said this on the show before, but I'll just repeat it for usefulness sake. Um, in a JPEG compressed image, one tends to see halation around areas of high, what's called high frequency differentiation. What that basically means in English is where you have a sharp uh, dark edge against a significantly lighter edge that's where you are prone to see more halation than, let's say, areas of continuous tone or more of a subtle differentiation in brightness and, and, and color uh, uh, values. So this uh, halation is also something that very often is an artifact not only of the JPEG compression process, but also of the automatic sharpening that some cameras do in their firmware. Yeah. And um, when people learn how to do uh, sharpening techniques to images, one of the things that one has to watch out for is the excessive production of halos or this halation effect around areas, areas uh, that involve edges. So um, that's what you're seeing there. I'm, I'm impressed by your technical expertise. I really am impressed by your knowledge there. And I didn't think that that meant anything either, but I was curious mm -hmm. what you thought. I'll tell you what, so, before uh, we go to hour number two, Richard, why don't you tell our listeners where they can get a copy of the first book, UFOs in the National Security State, indeed. Volume 1. 
Absolutely. Uh, go to my website, which is keyholepublishing.com, just like looking through a keyhole, keyholepublishing.com. Um, you can buy a signed first edition of my book uh, through the website. You can click the purchase icon there. Uh, the book's also available, uh, the second edition, uh, through amazon.com, and or uh, many of your local bookstores will probably have it as well. Uh, Amazon's an easy way to get it. UFOs in the National Security State. That's volume one. That covers the years 1941 to 1973. And uh, as we've been discussing, volume two is so close now. I'm <laughs> looking forward it. to getting that thing done. I can. Yeah. Yeah. We, look, we look forward to it as well. And we'll get back with more discussion with Richard Dolan on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return with Richard Dolan. He is author of UFOs in the National Security State, which has now become a trilogy. It started out to be one volume, then a second volume, and now he's working on a third as he's just about done with the second. At what point, Richard, did you decide, you know what, I can't do it in two books? Um, a little over a year ago, um, I was just looking at the sheer, for example, what had been the first chapter of the book uh, was itself 100 pages. And I, I thought, how can I start chapter one with, with something that's actually in excess of 100 pages? And I tried looking at a way to cut it down, and I just I couldn't justify it. So um, that was one problem. And then just the sheer um, duration of this project, which has just been going and going and going, it was a feeling that I, I just wanted to get something done and out of my life, frankly. And then the other thing was that had the book kept going as a single volume, it would have been well over 1,000 pages. And what's the point? What's the point? Um, I don't want to publish or read a book that's 1,000 pages. So I thought, let's just do it logically. I'll break it down into to three approximately 500-page books and, and be done with it. And that'll allow me just to finish and have a nice break-off point. 1991 is really, the more I've, I've thought about it, an ideal break-off point. It's the end of the Cold War. It ends an era in, in certain key ways. And so I thought, that's good. We'll just take it for those two decades, basically the 70s and 80s up to 1991 and, and cut it there. That was a little over a year ago. I was encouraged uh, in a conversation as well with uh, Stephen Bastet, who really strongly recommended that tactic. Uh, ended in 1991. I thought, you know, he had, he had been saying this to me for some months. And I think uh, I was somewhat persuaded by that, too. So when I made that decision, it simplified my life in so many ways, to be honest. <laughs> I suddenly Richard, felt the lifting of this enormous weight off of me. I'd like to go back and ask you some questions about triangles, uh, because you identified that in doing the second book, it became clear that this was a major uh, a change in trending, yeah. that all of a sudden people were, were seeing these. Now, the stuff that I, that I know I've read, and, and I imagine this is true for Gene as well, um, there, there seems to be this, um, this thing where there are extremely large triangular or boomerang-shaped right. craft, right. and then there are, are smaller crafts. So uh, the, the question is, do you see a specific pattern here? Did smaller triangular craft appear and then the larger triangular craft? And how do these overlap with potential covert aeronautic projects going on in the U.S. military? Excellent questions, and I'm interested in both of them. Um, in the uh, the first question is which were which appeared first, the smaller or the mm -hmm. larger one? In the 1975 wave 
those were not humongous in size. They were some of them were fairly large. I think more than 100 feet in diameter. So they were fairly substantial. I and mean, when you think of an object of that size, a triangle of that size, it's pretty large. Mm-hmm. But it, not not the uh, the so-called big black deltas of uh, like 600 feet or more, which have been reported. Those were not being reported in the 70s. Uh, you do, however, start getting those of, of objects of that size in the Hudson Valley flap about uh, less than a decade later. Mm-hmm. Now, f- granted, though, there's, there's, you know, the Hudson Valley objects, this is in the lower part of New York State, were not usually triangular shaped so much as boomeranged. At least that's how witnesses identified them. On the other hand, it's not always easy to say, was the object a boomerang or a triangle? So it was nighttime in many cases, and sometimes... It wasn't always easy to know if it was a boomerang or a triangle. It was some kind of angular design to the object. So I think in some cases it's still not 100% clear. And then, of course, you get a lot more triangle sightings out in Antelope Valley in Southern California in the late 80s, and you get them then big time in over Belgium in 1989. You get them also, by the way, over the uh, the, the Soviet Union as it was in the stages of, of cracking up. There was a major event over not too far from Moscow in March of 1990. Uh, I happen to think that that's a very good case, and that was a large uh, triangular object that uh, was the subject of an attempted intercept by Soviet pilots. So now the question is, Who's making these things, and is it related to covert covert manufacturing program? And I think the answer very possibly is yes. I can't be sure, but my feeling is if these, if we're making our own UFOs, and I say we very loosely, I say we only in the sense of human beings, okay? If human beings <laughs> okay. are making a flying triangle, then I'm really not of the opinion that it's officially part of the U.S. military structure. And the reason I I think that is because the U.S. has fought, since 1990, a number of major wars. Now, we didn't really need amazing triangular craft in the invasion of Panama or in the Gulf War of 1991. But they sure as hell would have come in handy in Afghanistan, and they sure as hell would have come in handy over Iraq. And you got to imagine that... If your military's got it and you don't want to use it, that had better be pretty damned important if you're going to be willing to bankrupt your country and and fight two endless wars uh, as a result of not using it. So my feeling is it's not in the arsenal of the U.S. military, um, or if it is, it is in a program that is 100% entirely separate and what would such a program be? Well, clearly, I think it would be related to uh, extraterrestrial presence, so that such craft would be used. I'm just theorizing here now, solely for part of the ET-related program. Whether that means to uh, have confrontations with them, or if it means to observe them, or if it means to go off-world in some way, I don't know. But uh, that's my theory. I think that we are probably making some of these triangles. In fact, I know we're making some triangles. For example, there was a a first-rate observation by one of the world-class experts in aircraft recognition back in 1989 over in Britain who saw a refueling operation with uh, KC-135 tankers and an absolutely perfect triangular aircraft. The man who identified this uh, writes books on aircraft recognition. He competes in aircraft recognition 
contest whereby an image of an ob- of aircraft is, is shown at you at high speed and you have to identify it, bing, bing, bing. That's who this guy was, and he saw it perfectly clearly. And no one really disputes it. Aviation writers all think that that's legitimate. Now, we're not talking about the F-117? No, 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 no. It was not an F-117. Absolutely not. At the time, it was it was uh, rumored or was believed that it would be the legendary Aurora aircraft. Right. Uh, it was it was seen as a perfect triangle. Um, no, I've got uh, the whole statement of this man, and it was not not an F one seventeen, not a stealth fighter, not a stealth mm. bomber either. Mm-hmm. So whatever it was, it was a triangle, and I think that it's fair to say that that's in our arsenal. Now, the real question that I ask myself is if these triangles are in our arsenal. The real thing is, what makes them go? I mean, they're not, they don't go work on ordinary aerodynamic principles, it seems to me. Um, what, what is their source of fuel? Are they jet? They, they don't seem to be operating on, uh, on standard kind of scramjet type of, you know, thing, uh, propulsion. They, they seem to be operating on something different. And what that is, um, if it's something that we're making, it seems to be that it would be a revolutionary sort of system. Um, and that well, itself is worthy of, of investigation, seems to me. Right. Let's bring up now, I mean, people need to, to understand, for example, the uh, Phoenix Lights incident, which is really, of course, separated into two separate things, which was the very large, extremely large triangular craft seen earlier in the evening. Right. Um, and then the what many of us feel are probably flares later on that were actually videotaped. And when people talk about the Phoenix Lights episode, that's usually the visual reference that is deployed to describe that, which many of us believe is was probably a distraction, was probably faked in order to, and again, this is a, 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 a constant thread, a theme that we see, in order to essentially discredit the earlier sighting of the extremely large craft, a craft that I, I suspect is not a human source craft, given two things. A, the scale of it. It's described as being a mile long. Uh, we have nothing in the sky or in the ocean that's a mile long. We have nothing that is that size. We don't. Uh, there's. We, I think we'd have a pretty good idea if that did exist. I think it's pretty clear that it doesn't exist as far as human technology goes, A. B, that large triangular craft uh, in the Phoenix episode was completely silent. And so that's another line we have to draw in the sand where I think that any technology that is is created by humans that puts large objects or any objects into the sky outside of balloons is going to make a significant amount of noise. That's just the deal. When you have these craft that are silent... Well, right. Unless, unless, of course, um, unless they figured something out, David, that we're not that we're not using. And I mean, I don't really know the full answer to this either. Uh, what mm-hmm. I do know is that there, there's the world militaries in the 70s and 80s were replete with accounts of fighter interceptors of all nations going up and encountering occasionally enormous, gargantuan-sized objects. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Chile in 1978. There was uh, an encounter at the end of that year in which. Uh, fighter pilots were sent up and encountered what they described as absolutely a, more than a mile long uh, right. UFO. And, and actually, one of those pilots went on to become a general in later years and talked about it at length. But we've got a very good account of that. So there are these large objects that are being seen. 
Um, now, you're talking about a mile in 1978. you got some explaining to do if that's yeah, yeah, technology. Absolutely. Well, I don't think it hand, is. I really don't think it well, is. Well, no, I, I don't, I don't, I'm inclined not to think so either. Um, but the thing that I, I will not dismiss, the, you know, there are, there are leaks that I think we will agree are very uh, questionable and, let's say, not legitimate. And there are other leaks that I really wonder about that I think may be legitimate. Uh, one, long before the world learned of Bob Lazar, uh, James Goodall, a journalist who did uh, mainstream journalistic work dealing with the aerospace community, cultivated his own contacts uh, inside Groom Lake facility. This is in the mid-'80s. You know, it's an amazing thing. Uh, there, some of these journalists were looking into these things at that early stage. And Goodall in 85 had cultivated a number of Groom Lake sources. Now, again, you know, it's just a story. You can, you can dismiss it or you're not. Sure, sure. I, I tend to think I don't want to dismiss it. But one of Goodall's sources, uh, when asked by Goodall, do you believe in UFOs? The guy said, yes, absolutely, they exist. And then he said, uh, famously, uh, we have things, we have things in the Nevada desert that would make George Lucas uh, envious Better, he said, better than Star Trek or anything you see on TV. Now, maybe that's a bunch of hype, but that was a 1985 statement. And, and frankly, whatever one thinks of Lazar himself, George Knapp, the journalist who uh, got the Lazar story out, and I know George Knapp pretty well. Um, I've talked to George Knapp many times about Bob Lazar. But the thing that that's impresses me about George is that he has about 20 other Groom Lake contacts and connections that he's cultivated, who he says uh, say essentially the same compatible type of story to what Lazar has said and what Goodall's sources say to him. That is, who talk about reverse engineering alien technology to a greater or lesser extent, you know, trying to create, trying to create a flying saucer. Uh, Knapp has a lot of these contacts, and none of these people want to give their name for obvious reasons, which makes it difficult for a researcher. But it's also, uh, if you are someone on the inside, uh, clearly you wouldn't want to give your name up. So sure. what I'm saying is that there's a there's a lot of smoke coming from that, and I don't, I don't, I think some of it is legitimate. Um, it seems to me when when I look at all of the, the whole picture, I think that. Some of these objects have gone down. Some of these extraterrestrial objects have, in one way or another, come into our possession. And even if one comes into our possession, you've got to assume that we're going to try to replicate it in, in whatever way is possible. And what that means is that you have to create a very secret infrastructure, very secret. You have to keep it secret from Congress. You have to have a massive amount of funding going into it. How do you fund such a thing? How do you fund the attempt to um, create flying saucer technology. Do you get it through black budget Congress or do you get it through other means as well, not all of which are legal? Well, I think that there's a lot of ways that this money comes in, frankly. And then you privatize a lot of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of it becomes private. So, so this has been a completely off-the-grid R&D program that has gone for not decades, but I think generations. And with a lot of money to play with, who the hell knows what they could have come up with by now? I'll could tell you what. I'll tell you what. This is so far off the grid that I think we want to get into the implications of that. Hi, this 
this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. You're a little arrogant with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Richard Dolan, author of a trilogy. An ongoing trilogy called UFOs in the National Security State, Volume 1 out now, Volume 2 just finishing. Then he goes to Volume 3, and then he goes to a rest home to recover from it. But you're raising so many issues here about this secret government, whatever, that's managing the UFO technology. But you have to look at something, too. If they've got all this technology, is this taking us back to the Philip Corso story where Corso allegedly sent some alien technology into the hands of private industry? Does private industry have alien technology now? What is it? Yes, I think the answer to that is they do. I think the answer to that is yes. Um, now, Corso had one element of this story, and uh, what he said before he died, died one year after the book came out, was that uh, circa 1960, he was part of uh, the Army's attempt to segue some uh, Roswell technology to, to private industry. Now, of course, even if that was true, you have to assume that he would not have been by any means the only guy ever to have done that, or the first guy to have done that, obviously. I will say that I've at this point cultivated a few people um, who are connected with that world who, uh, for whatever reason, tell me things. Now, it's always possible that they want to blow smoke up my bottom, or maybe it's possible that they um, want to tell me something because they, they think it's true. Uh, what I can say is I've gotten very consistent accounts from a, a wide range of sources that tell me that this problem has gone private in many, many significant ways. So that I mean, think of it logically. Go back to, this is what I think actually happened. Go back to 1947-48 and pretend you're the president. So you're Harry Truman and your uh, top general, let's say, um, maybe your top science advisor, Vannevar Bush, tells you, sir, we've recovered technology that was not, does not appear to have been manufactured by human hands. So you've got this real major bit of information to deal with, and you have to decide, do you tell the world or do you not yet tell the world? Well, clearly, you might want to hold on to this secret. You certainly didn't want to share atomic technology. And if you tell the world you've got something better than that, it would be really difficult, wouldn't it, to keep that under your monopoly. So I think what you might do is you'd gather together a top, top-level group of people, and you'd say, I want you to figure this out. I want you to... Um, find out what makes this technology work. Do we have to worry about these other beings? Uh, what are the implications if we tell the world? How bad will the panic be? All of these logical questions, I think, actually did happen. And then what you'd have to do is that this group would, would of necessity, be secret almost from itself in a way. You'd have to keep it very, very compartmented. But then at a certain point, let's say you're the army and you've got this piece of technology now. So now, at some point, you want to do something with it, I would assume. So how do you do something with it? Well, within the military, there's certainly a scientific structure there with some very bright people. But realistically, I think, if you 
want to have anything practically done from this. You'd have to go to your contractors at some point. They're the people, after all, with the true R&D and the true engineers that make things for you. That's their job. You go to Raytheon or Lockheed or General Electric or any of these other places where they make cutting-edge high-tech equipment for you. At some point, you'd have to show the right people this artifact, and you'd say, I want you to study it and come back with uh, you know, a way to replicate the electromagnetic properties of it or you know, the superconductivity or whatever. All of this research would be compartmented. But then what happens? Who, who retains ownership over the technology and over the pieces? It becomes very much, I think, the, I think the, the dominant player becomes private industry. Think about it. First of all, the U.S. government itself has been dominated by leaders of industry and finance since basically forever, for the last hundred years. Um, you have the president's office, which has been dominated by the Council on Foreign Relations since the 1930s, which is itself a tool created by and for the American financial community. Uh, you have a situation where when these top generals retire, where do they go? They go to work for these contractors at massive salaries as senior vice presidents. I mean, there's a great deal of interbreeding going on in that world anyway. I think it makes a lot of sense to hand this technology off to private industry. Uh, that's on a logical basis, plus what I'm getting in terms of a few sources that I happen to think are credible who are telling me the exact same thing. There's a story that, in fact, I was uh, peripherally part of, the uh, controversy dealing with Thomas, uh, Admiral Thomas Wilson, who was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff about 10 years ago. If you are not familiar with the story, I can recap it very quickly. Please, okay. sure. Yeah, it's, it's a good story. It's an interesting story. In 1997, when I was basically still a noob doing this research, astronaut Edgar Mitchell and Stephen Greer, Dr. Stephen Greer, who of course uh, is a very polarizing figure in this field, but Greer led this initiative in 97 to try to meet with members of Congress and the Joint Chiefs over what he believed were runaway black programs within the DOD dealing with alien technology. And by runaway, his feeling was, or his knowledge, he said, was that these were rogue uh, contractors within the Pentagon that really were not under formal Pentagon control. And so Greer's tactic, as it were, was to try to convince members of Congress or the Joint Chiefs to try to get hold over this. After all, if you believe in uh, representative government, you would presumably want your elected responsible officials running this program, not private contractors. Okay. So what we actually know happened is that Greer and Mitchell did have an audience with Admiral Thomas Wilson, who was head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff at that time. And we know they had the meeting. I learned about this before Greer wrote about it. I heard about it, I learned about it from one of my key sources who told me a lot about it and, and showed me, how do I put this, showed me information dealing with the person in the Joint Chiefs' reaction upon getting this information. In other words, I wasn't given an aim at this time. All I was told is that Greer and Mitchell met with a very prominent person about these black programs who then in the aftermath tried to knock on some doors and get information about it and was denied access to it and was denied access because he didn't have a need to know. And the only reason he was given an audience with anyone was because they wanted to find out how the leak occurred. And, and the people who denied him access weren't even defense people, but were lawyers and it, um, basically lawyers for the private contractor that controlled this program. It was an extraterrestrial technology program. 
Now, that's what I knew before Greer's book came out. When Greer wrote his book, um, gosh, what's the name of it? Um, Hidden Secrets, uh, what's Stephen Greer's last book? Hidden Truths, uh, Forbidden Knowledge. He came out and wrote about that meeting and outed Admiral Thomas Wilson. I contacted my source and said it was Wilson, wasn't it? He said yes. Hmm. So I, I ended up calling Thomas Wilson myself. I spoke to him. After I spoke with Edgar Mitchell, and after I spoke with um, uh, Stephen Greer, the main secretary who answered all my questions for me, <laughs> couldn't reach Greer. I could reach the admiral, and I could reach Edgar Mitchell. But I couldn't reach Greer. Uh, but they all they, – Mitchell said, yes, the meeting happened, absolutely. Greer said, yes, the meeting happened. Uh, my contact said, yes, the meeting happened. I, fi- I finally reached Admiral Wilson. Okay, now here's the thing, all right, calling a man who is head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs, and I'm trying to get him to admit that he was denied access to a black program designed to study alien technology. That's that's a bombshell. If I can get him to admit that, that's kind of a big deal. I'm sure you would agree, because then you could run with that story. Holy smokes, who knows where he'd end up with after that. I wasn't really expecting Admiral Wilson, frankly, to admit that this happened. But I got him. I was able to get a meeting with him. I didn't mean to ambush him, but essentially that's what I did. He thought I was a very conventional historian uh, asking about uh, some things having to do with the Joint Chiefs. Well, I said, I'm a UFO researcher, and uh, I learned about this meeting that you had in 1997 with uh, Dr. Greer and Edgar Mitchell. And uh, Thomas Wilson, to his credit, just denied, denied, denied for the longest time. He said, uh, my memory is foggy. I don't remember such a thing. I was a busy man, etc., etc." And I finally said, look, Edgar Mitchell told me he had the meeting. Stephen Greer wrote about it. And I have a third source, a man that I think may be known to you, who has said explicitly that you did. And I know it happened, sir. At that point, he said, well, yes, it, it did. Okay, right. I remember now. <laughs> uh, he asked yes, me. Yes, they re- just remember, isn't that? Yes, exactly. It was oh, like, I don't oh, know. I didn't know. I, you know what? I think I might vaguely possibly remember. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? 
We're talking to Richard Dolan on the Paracast, and he's author of UFOs and the National Security State Becoming a Mammoth, three volume set. So now he begins to sort of remember this, huh? Exactly. I felt a lot of sympathy for him. I certainly didn't want to uh, put him in a bad way, but look, I wanted to find this out as well. He asked if I would read to him the passage out of Greer's book where he describes all of this, uh, which I did. And he said, well, here's what I'll say. The meeting did take place. Uh, the only reason I had the meeting was in order to find out why an astronaut of the caliber of Dr. Mitchell was interested in this subject. Uh, and everything else Greer said in that is total poppycock. That's the word he used, poppycock, which is a word that I've heard maybe about ten times in my whole life. And I got very upset. Wilson, you know, his whole tone had changed during this meeting. When we started, he was nice and relaxed, uh, I think, preparing to sit down for a nice leisurely interview with, with me. And as soon as this whole topic came up, his voice got high-pitched, got very stressed out, and he wanted to end the conversation right away. And he said, I have another meeting to go to. Thank you very much. I have to go. And he ended it. That was it. Um, my sense of talking with him about this was absolutely – yes, the meeting took place. He said nothing happened as a result of it, that he did no follow-up. But I don't believe that. Edgar Mitchell has said now he has supported what I have said on this since then and has said, yes, that he knows Wilson followed up and that Wilson was denied access to these programs. When you're head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff – I guess that doesn't mean that you are therefore privy to every single thing, but you might assume that you would be privy to the important secrets going on. And certainly, if the head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs is not privy to this, then, then what is actually going on? What's going on here? He was denied access to this program. He was not considered a person who had a need to know. And he was denied by private contractors. That's the information as has come to me, and I think it's true. Speaking of need to know, does the president have a need to know? I think the answer is no. The president doesn't, isn't considered to have a need to know. Now, I have another um, <laughs> of my mysterious sources who is in a position to know a few things about this, and I asked this individual, what do presidents know? I was told they know different things. They don't all know the same amount. Uh, it was his knowledge, he said, that Presidents Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and George Bush Sr. all were briefed formally and officially on this matter. He did not believe, he wasn't sure whether Bill Clinton had been briefed, and he was pretty sure that George W. Bush was not briefed on the matter. The idea being that presidents come and go, but the program stays. And what would a president be able to do about it? When you, when you look logically, I mean, certainly it's easy to see that the president is not briefed on a whole array of very sensitive activities going on in the black world. There's just too many, first of all. There's too many to brief. You know, as of, as of 2000, it was estimated that there were 150 special access programs within the Pentagon many of which were what are called waived or unacknowledged special access programs. All that means is these were black budget programs that are not supposed to officially to exist. So where's the money come from? Is it like the $78 billion that they overpaid the banks for the bailout program? They really didn't go to the banks. They went to a black project of one sort or another. Is that how they do it? I think a lot of the money gets siphoned into black projects, absolutely. I think that um, you know we have to keep in mind that 
ideology and idealism may matter to you or me or to other ordinary citizens, but they don't matter at all in the least to people who actually run these government agencies. They don't care about that. I think what they care about is obtaining as much money and funding as possible for their particular private Idaho. That's all they care about. I don't think ideology matters a damn to most of those people. What we do know is that since the 1990s, we've been able to document the disappearance, not of billions of dollars from the U.S. government, but of trillions of dollars from the U.S. government. And this we know. In 1994, there was a law that was passed that obligated the U.S. government in some way to account for itself in a business-like way, uh, supposed to you know, improve government accountability and so on. Well, from that point onward, there were a number of studies that came out in Congress and also in the mainstream news discussing the disappearance $1.1 trillion here, $2.3 trillion, $2.6 trillion as stated personally by Donald Rumsfeld himself in July of 2001. I remember that, yes. Donald, I have the transcript. Sure. A man said it, and he wasn't misspeaking. That's the crazy thing. It wasn't a misquote because, A, members of Congress followed up on that statement and said, well, you know, to effect, that's a lot of money. Sure, but just take it in stride. <laughs> oh, listen, a couple of trillion this way, a couple of trillion there. Who cares? doesn't matter. And, and then, uh, right, and that number was amended to 2.3 trillion from 2.6. So, okay, great. And then 9-11 happens, and that story disappeared. It was gone, gone off the radar. Uh, no follow-up on this. Now, it's almost too much for me to wrap my brain around. I don't, I truly do not understand. I'm not a financial whiz. I don't get how you can misplace $2.3 trillion. And, and in the context of what Rumsfeld was saying, incidentally, um, I have read his statement over and over, and the context appears to be solely within the Pentagon. As Rumsfeld was talking about the mess that he had inherited from the Clinton administration. This is early in the Bush years, remember. And he's talking about, you know, we got our accounting is so snarled up. There's $2.6 trillion in, a, in transactions that we cannot account for if that's believable, he said. So I think he was talking about the Pentagon. That, to put it in perspective, that number was eight times the official budget for 2001 in the Pentagon. The Pentagon's budget for the 01 was $310 billion. And this is about eight times that amount. How do you misplace eight times your annual budget? I don't get it. I still don't get it. I've talked with uh, – uh, I had a miniature private debate with John Alexander about this, John Alexander being a very um, leading expert in non-lethal weapon technology and very well connected with uh, top-level leadership. And Alexander just saw, well, it was obviously a mistake. It can't be true. And I said, well, look, man, they said it more than one time, and it's part of a pattern of several times in the 90s where trillions of dollars were, were gone missing. So I don't think it was a mistake. That doesn't mean that I can understand it. But this gets back to your question, Gene. This money, what we have is not so much a government as, as an organized criminal gang. It's a mafia. It really is. Now, who's in control of it? Well, I think that there are powers behind the scene, frankly. I think they are national and international in scope. So we're talking about and, international uh, bankers here? I think to some extent, yes, we have to. David, do you have any feelings about this? You've been a little bit silent no. here. I can't believe I've quieted David Biedney. I've quieted the great David Biedney. 
Well, yes, I think that that's probably part of the picture. I mean, look. I mean, if you want to continue with this, I'll, I'll gladly do it. We're moving away from UFOs, but we're dealing with cover-up and conspiracy, so why not? Well, the thing, of the course, point, is that is, if we know the secrets of UFOs somewhere right. within the government. Now, are we assuming it's our government or a government that extends beyond the boundaries of well, the what I think, Right. What I think has been happening, we've been seeing a kind of silent revolution, a transformation of the international structures of power. I don't think that's so hard to understand. We're moving toward a global world. I mean, right now, you've got the G7 hammering home the perceived necessity of reorganizing the global financial system. And this is just another step in a long, long transformation. It's called globalization. This was an agenda back in the 1970s and 1980s through the 1990s. If you really look for consistencies in presidential administrations, you will find it in an extended globalization and basically a self-mutilation of uh, much of the U.S. productive capability. Well, you know, I'm looking Uh, here at the end game, okay? Let's look at the end game here. That is, okay, we have this secret government going on, doing all sorts of things, okay? They're doing all sorts of strange things with our money. The money's disappearing, whether it's the $78 billion that disappeared when it supposedly went to the banks, whether it was a couple of trillion, three trillion that Donald Rumsfeld talks about. Okay, so we have this money going to secret projects. Is it just UFOs? Is it just learning about alien technology? What are they using Uh, it for? What's the end game? I don't know where it all goes, Gene. I would love to know. here's, Here's why I think some of it goes to the UFO program. Because A, there's a lot of missing money, and B, a secret UFO program is going to need a lot of money. So it seems like you've got a positive and a negative there, and they're going to they're going to go together. So I think that there's very likely a strong connection there. And plus, the the little public work that we've had done on special access programs also ties in with this. So yes, my feeling that's all I'm going to say. I can't say that I have knowledge of this yet, but I believe yes that. Some of this missing money has gone into a secret UFO infrastructure, and that that infrastructure has been involved in a couple of things. One is to build flying saucers, let's call them that, triangles, whatever they are, and that there are very likely other scientific components involved to study ET technology, bodies, biotechnology. Is there a secret space program? I think I would probably say yes, there probably is. Uh, When I look at the uh, evidence of anomalies that we know have happened in space – I just uh, last night finished a piece on a Soviet space uh, UFO encounter in 1990. I think there's enough of those to provide strong motivation for a secret space program, Frank. If you know that there are anomalies out there and you want to investigate them, you need covert money to do it. So clearly you, you would have a secret component or a secret space program altogether. All right, so let's expand this, on. okay? Let's right. expand this. Keep let's going. look at the really deep question here. Okay. Question number one, how in the hell do we prove any of this? Because it's very easy to sit back and speculate. I mean, we do have certain levels of evidence. We can say, okay, Donald Rumsfeld's talking about trillions of dollars disappearing. The Secretary of the Treasury might be talking about overspending for bank assets. I don't know if it'll ever be possible, honestly, to prove it, at least in the context of what we have today. I don't know. I mean, all I've tried to do is to gather together what I think is – a good level of historical evidence to put together 
what looks like a logical interpretation. Well, that, let's look at is there any more of this, any more of this logical evidence that we have. Now, let's look more in recent years because we want to look at events that are going on right now. Right now, the world's economies are tanking, okay? Right. Now, does that mean that all that money that should have been available for home loans, for car loans, credit cards, whatever, it's been secreted away by the secret government to do whatever it is that they're doing? Yeah, well, I guess the answer is... I suppose so. I mean, maybe that's the case. Maybe that is the case. If now, is there any money, possibility here, though? Because let's not belabor the point. Any We're speculating any possibility without belaboring the point that there's no way to prove this. There'll never be a way to prove this. And maybe it's not even true. Well, maybe what's not even true? That, well, what would not be true? The theory of a secret government. No, I think, I think that there's very strong evidence that we have. I don't know if I want to call it a secret government. Let's, let's call it a secret club. I mean, talk about groups like the Bilderberger Group, Gene, or David. That's, a, that's an actual group. We know they exist. We know that they gather together once a year, every year. We know that they are made up of the absolute top-level leaders, both financially and politically, in the world. We know that they've been dominated by people like David Rockefeller for 50 years. We know this. All of that is absolutely not arguable. Uh, we know that there's a media blackout every single time they meet. We know that major of the world, many of the world's major political leaders, before they became political leaders, were Bilderberg attendees. Gerald Ford, famously, three or four or five times in the 60s, when nobody knew Gerald Ford other than the Warren Commission people. All right? Of course, but when he was uh, at the Bilderberger meetings, was he allowed to chew gum and walk at the same time? <laughs> well, I don't know what happened in Gerald Ford's meetings, and there's not that much information that's available about it, but we know Gerald Ford attended them. We okay, that Gerald Ford, Ford was also involved in the UFO hearings that resulted in the Condon report. Yes, in the he 60s. was. That's right. He was involved. Well, Gerald Ford made uh, one statement in 1966 on the floor of Congress about his constituents in Michigan who, who saw what they believe is a UFO, and he made a very uh, forthright statement about it, absolutely. Bill Clinton attended a Bilderberger meeting in 1991, his first one. Uh, Tony Blair attended one shortly before he became Prime Minister of Britain. It should be obvious, I would think, that the Bilderbergers are one of several important clubs in which there's a media blackout in which the most important people make certain decisions. And we can extrapolate further. If you study the history and career of a man like David Rockefeller, who wrote an autobiography not many years ago, was very unapologetic about pushing a globalist agenda. That is what he wants. What does Barack a, Obama want? Well, that's a good question. Is he attending these meetings that were attended by... Ford by Clinton, or is he an I, outsider? It's an excellent question, and I don't know. But here's one thing that we can um, that we do know: this uh, trillion dollar stimulus package, the bailout, in other words, which was of course promoted by George W. Bush before he left the White House, and then taken on and toto by Barack Obama. One thing about that package that uh, is very easy for people to lose sight of is that. The Obama administration, at least initially, pushed a, um, a buy American aspect to the package so that infrastructure development uh, would be predicated on you know, using American-made steel or other American-made products. Well, that clause caused a bit of a, a ruckus around the world. Australian steelmakers, for example, were really upset about that. In the international community meeting in Switzerland, the G20 meeting, which just took place a couple of weeks ago, there was a member of the Carlisle Equity Group, which is the largest private equity firm in the world. And I forget this man's name. You could look it up. He's 
I think a co-founder of it. He said to this G20 meeting, that part of the stimulus package will not, that won't fly. He said, that's just something for politicians to uh, vent, you know, vent some steam. Now, <laughs> basically what he said is that won't happen. Now, if you're Barack Obama, you can look at that in one way. You could say, well, that's a real affront to my authority as president. You could say, who the hell are you to tell me what's going to go into my stimulus package, buddy? But what actually happened is that several hours later, the same day, a member of the Obama administration said publicly, well, we'll need to revisit that part of the stimulus package. Yes, that actually I heard too. Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. talking to Richard Dolan on the Paracast, author of UFOs in the National Security State. And we're talking now not so much about national security, but world security and what it is they know about right. dealings with so-called alien technology. Is it really going on under the surface? Is there really a black project or one or more black projects where they're reverse engineering alien technology? And why do we worry about the oil industry if we have all this alien technology? Why should we even have to concern ourselves about finding one drop of oil if we have some miraculous way of propelling ourselves not just across the country but to the stars? Well, indeed. Indeed. One, if, if you want to speak on behalf of the secret keepers, let's call them that, there might be a problem with this technology. There might be some serious problems. I'm, again, I only speculate. But what if, for example, something like uh, the legendary zero-point energy does exist? Some people have said it does, and you can use that to extract energy from the, the, the vacuum, as it were, and that this would make petroleum obsolete. Okay, that's kind of cool. There are, might be a couple of bad implications from this in the short term. It might cause a financial collapse of the petroleum industries, which might not be a good thing for the global financial community. But more significantly, in the long run, what if by having access to this awesome source of energy, something that would allow you to heat your home, let's say, forever for free, right? What if also you could make a real good bomb out of it? What if, if it was something that couldn't be easily regulated or controlled sufficiently to ensure the safety of the world if some crazy guy decided to blow up half the Pacific Ocean with it. I don't know. What if? So there, there may be a lot of unresolved implications from the possession of whatever revolutionary technology that may exist. Again, I only speculate because I've wondered about this myself for so long, and I think that, well, it's possible. So there, there may be good reasons, in other words. And... Um, and it may also be that uh, there are selfish reasons involved. 
you know, in 1960, let's let's pretend that uh, some conceptual breakthrough was made, and we then some brilliant scientist figured out, oh, here's how the aliens do it, and you know, we can bypass the whole petroleum industry. Well, the problem with that in 1960 would be, A, there's really no oil crisis to speak of. We don't really need to switch over. And B, we would cause a financial uh, catastrophe. So, so much of the global economy was dependent on petroleum production at that time. You know, it sounds great in the long run for humanity to switch over, but in the short run, the financial interests of those people who have the power would certainly be very, very badly affected by it. So they don't really have a motivation. Now, this isn't 1960. We are now in a situation where we've got some issues going on in terms of energy. Oil prices have come down a bit, that's true, but even official oil industry spokespersons uh, all discuss an incompatibility of supply and demand in another 20, 30 years. And maybe they'll find more massive fields. But the problem is that demand for petroleum is not a static thing. Petroleum demand, roughly speaking, doubles every 20, 25 years. So I don't care how much of that stuff is in the ground. If you're going to double your demand every 25 years at a certain point, you're not going to have enough to meet it. And so um, we're in a situation. Now, how close are we to that? Well, I don't know. But we're in a situation where we can't go like this forever, clearly. We're going to have a, a complete cessation of economic growth globally if energy prices get too high. If you look historically at, at, at economic growth in energy, you find that there's a very close correlation there. When energy gets too expensive, you're not going to get growth. Okay, so if we have extraterrestrial technology secreted away, are they involved in this or what? I, well, I, again, I don't know. All we have are rumors, and rumors aren't always worth very much. I can't say that I really am any more qualified than you or David or any person who calls in, frankly, to say whether we're having a collaboration all right, with extraterrestrials. My suspicion is that there are probably more than one group here. This is my suspicion and my belief. And that if they've been here long enough, that they're very likely could have evolved among the human power structure, a kind of secret group that's in the know that would then deal with these other beings. Do I see that as possible? You bet I do. Absolutely, I see that as possible, and maybe that's even the case. Is that something that we can assume is extraterrestrial, or can we look at other possibilities of UFO origin? Okay, interdimensional, sure, same yeah, difference, absolutely. same difference. Sure. Or crypto-terrestrial, which is there's another race of beings, intelligent beings on that this planet that have coexisted with us, and maybe they are pulling the strings. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have uh, no theoretical problem with that as opposed to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, none at all. To me, the significant thing is that they are not us. They're not of our civilization, uh, at least formally. There's something different. Uh, if they're from another planet, if they're from another dimension, if they're from another part of this planet under the ocean, say, whatever, under the ground, yeah, any of those are possible. I, I would not dismiss those at all. Okay, looking at the meta subject here, are we taking your – Two books. How far are you going into this in Volume 2 and in the forthcoming Volume 3? Limited, to be honest with you, Gene. Okay. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I just wrote a, a fairly extended subchapter on uh, what I call the structure of secrecy. Uh, this is a, a talk that I've given at a number of conferences over the years, and I thought I really do need to 
get that across as to how I my sense of the big picture, how the secrecy structure works. And so a number of the things that we've just discussed in this interview, uh, dealing with the black budget and the missing money, I've I have tried to work that into an analysis in, in my book. As far as dealing with them who these other beings are. Uh, I, I deal with it only when I deal with research at the time that dealt with it. So, for example, abduction literature. I do I do a fairly substantial study of the abduction researchers in the 1980s. It's a big part of the story, and, and I needed to treat it. And then other uh, accounts, alleged accounts, let's say, of people's encounters with, with alien beings. I dealt with that to some extent. Uh, I have a quick question. I'm curious about something. What's your personal threshold of credibility in these topics? What do you personally find to be non-credible? Well, give me an example. It's, it's, yeah, please, give me an example. Give me an example. At the X conference this April, there is a fellow by the name of Jeff Peckman speaking, who I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. And uh, Peckman recently has publicly stated that he feels that the Billy Meyer case is highly credible, and he feels that Barack Obama should study this case to understand the reality of UFOs, oh, for example. I, I didn't know Peckman said that. It's unfortunate. He, he didn't. So uh, we constantly hear people involved with uh, the exopolitical movement, like Peckman, just talk about that case, or in the case of Alfred Weber, I was reading a document of Alfred Weber's, and, and Stephen Bass refers to him as the father of exopolitics, where uh, Alfred Weber says, and uh, I, I, I don't want to screw this up, I'll quote uh, Alfred Weber in his statement, and he says that, uh, that he believes that um, a first step through the, this quarantine, referring to the quarantine that Earth has been under, that he feels is ending, is a, a first step through this quarantine is a public interest diplomacy mission to the peaceful, ethical, intelligent civilization on Mars. Okay. okay, well, you've got two people right there who are very far beyond anything that I consider to be responsible and credible discussion. Okay, that, that's why, that's why that's, we're that's I, I want far to, yeah. beyond where I'm at. Uh, okay. I, I, let me just say this now. Let's probably get back to Alfred. And uh, Sorry, Alfred. <laughs> I'm apologizing in advance. But <laughs> I, um, I spoke at length with people behind the scenes about this designation that Alfred had, the father of exopolitics. Right. I, I had real problems with it. I have very serious problems with it. And um, and in general, let me just say this, I have I'm I'm very uncomfortable with the general tenor of what passes for exopolitics in the UFO field. I'm not the reason I'm not comfortable with it is not because I don't think it's a legitimate topic in theory. I mean, I think in theory it's a totally legitimate topic. That is, look, if you assume that there are other beings here, okay, then it's reasonable to assume that what would exopolitics be but the study of, presumably, the, the relationship between us and them. I mean, fundamentally, that's how I would look at it. I would consider that exopolitics. The way it's been taken, however, is a certain group of individuals who have turn this into something where we're going to make friends with with the Space Brothers, with the Star People. Right. I don't deny that there could very well be benign intelligences that are interested in us right now. I, I think that's entirely possible. However, to me, the nearly all of the exopolitical discussion is is done without any true 
handle on a the human power structure as it actually is. They're all on this uh, assumption that <clears throat> the president is this guy who actually has an ability to do something about it. And I'm no longer of that opinion. Maybe 10 years ago, I might have been. I'm not of that opinion now. Not at all. Um, and then B, it's also on the assumption that these extraterrestrials or metaterrestrials or ultraterrestrials or whatever they are, that they're somehow people that we would want to deal with. And I certainly don't believe that in certain cases. I've got kids. I would not want to leave either of my kids alone in a room with some of these beings as far mm -hmm. as how they seem to be. Mm -hmm. And so there are problems here. Uh, just openly reaching out for some kind of diplomatic channel. That to me, that aspect of exopolitics, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with. And I have always disassociated myself with it. I've never, I've had the opportunity to join, um, you know, the exopolitics organizations, and I've just always declined it. Uh, I work with Stephen Bassett on the X conferences because a, I feel that it's it's a good um, venue for me to express some of the things that I I think are important. It's an opportunity for me to get my message out to the extent that I have mm -hmm. a message. Um, and that means that I sometimes deal with people who, who are more consciously doing exopolitics, but you know, they're often very good people, and I, I like many of them personally. I think they're, they're honest, but uh, I think some of that exopolitical message is misguided. All right. You know what? It may be a good point there to begin to end this discussion. There's a lot we can discuss about what might be happening with our relationship, if there is one, with other beings, what the secret government might be involved in. Well, let me mention one thing. Can I sure. one final statement, Gene? Sure. I believe that the secrecy on this topic cannot, must, it will not last forever. I think it is inevitable, inevitable that this secret is going to come out. And the reason I do is not because the powers that be want it to come out. I think, frankly, if they had their way, it would never, ever, ever come out. But I do think that it will come out. And the reason is that our society is changing too rapidly. We're, we're in too much of a state of flux. Our technology, if nothing else, has transformed itself so dramatically in the last 20 years. We know it's going to continue for the next 20 years and beyond. We're not going to look like the same society that we are today that we're going to in 20 years. And so my feeling is that there are going to be fundamental differences that will very – very likely, in my opinion, allow for the opening of the extraterrestrial reality to be open and you know acknowledged. So Can I respond to that? Can I respond to that really quickly? David, Gene? Sure, David. David. Thanks. Um, it's my personal belief that the technological changes occurring to our society are creating an environment by where humans are much more easily controlled than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the result of that will be that the secrecy will not only continue but will deepen because it's my belief. My belief, I don't know this, I'm just stating this as a belief, that the secrecy that's involved is not initiated on the human side of the equation. It's my belief that we have absolutely zero power here. And so when I hear the term exopolitics, it is putting us and the other on the same level. And I think right, that's a right. fundamental flaw. And I think, I think, yeah, we agree on that. I agree with that. All right. The only thing is, I, I think that there is great potential for a kind of totalitarianism of the mind in the next generation. You're right about mm -hmm. that. It's possible. But it's I already think happened. That there are, I know, but there are there are different forces at work. I don't think 
that it's all unified. So <clears throat> I hold out the uh, the belief, and I don't think it's completely misguided, that that there's the other side of it, that that there are people who actually have this attachment to this quaint thing called the truth, and that it is possible that there may be some kind of breakthrough in a way that I can't even under, un, imagine yet, or maybe you can't, but I think it's possible. We're in, we're in a great state of flux, and for me to say it's always going to be secret, I, I just think it's probably short-sighted. Although, I, 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 worry, I, about, I worry about this other possibility. Well, you yeah. may be right. You may be I right. wish I was wrong. Um, no, I just not. know what I see. And I, and I know what I see in this field, and what passes in this field as, as knowledge. It, it sort of makes me sorry I ever got involved in the discussion. Well, what's important is the topic itself, not the people. And so, yeah. you know, we have to keep your eye on. We have to keep our eyes on the prize, so to speak. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, that's got to be it. Yes, sir. Richard Dolan, thank you so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, David. Thanks, Rich. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.